we have this thing in our brain. We basically look at the information we receive and we weigh it roughly equally. We have a democratic committee in our brain that says, okay, if I got 20 people who said something is bad and five people who said something is good, I'm going to believe it's bad. Even though if you carefully research the 20 people who said it's bad, they have no credibility whatsoever, no basis for their statement. Still, you're going to believe it's bad. Right. We, that tolling that we do in our brains causes us if we watching if you're watching a channel on television regularly that is uh, saying there's lots of bad news about this and there's not bad news about that after a while you come to agree with that channel simply because of polling in your brain Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach. We are back to talk more about the fun and exciting subject of economics. The dreary science has never been this dreary, exciting. I don't know. Uh, We have... More from last hour's question from Tom. We just barely touched on the effects of what's happening in the pandemic and so on. But um, his question was, uh, can you tie in the psychological effect of the new news and conversations and uptake in coronavirus infected individuals and an increase potentially in people getting vaccinated? Also, what's the predicted percentage target needed to where we can move on? So 70% is herd immunity between people having gotten the virus and vaccinated. Once we get to 70%, that's the theoretical number. There's still going to be outbreaks, particularly in that that 70% is supposed to be averaged across the entire country. There's still going to be big patches of people generally in localities that are not big on vaccination where it's going to be dangerous. You know, this is back to the guy that we like a lot, Douglas North, who unfortunately is dead now, but still he wrote some great stuff. Structure and change in economic history. Won a Nobel Prize in economics is intellectual property rights being his fundamental thing. And we've got stuff to talk on that subject this hour too. He forecasts that communication costs would drop dramatically in the 21st century. They've dropped to effectively zero. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything to tweet. And when communication costs drop dramatically, then people are subjected to seeing and writing, in this particular case, information that isn't necessarily true. And the shock value of negative information is much, much higher than the shock value of positive information. So there tends to be more negative information. If you don't believe it, just read the headlines. There's far more negatives in the headlines than there, are in posit- than there are positives in the headlines. Unless, of course, you read the Salado Village Voice, in which case it's mostly positive. But and, and just from not a, exactly big circulation. Just from a behavioral aspect, it, that makes sense. Just, I mean, if you think from your brain's perspective, just not you as your conscious portion, but uh, eating a steak is pleasurable. Yes? You would say that? Well, yes. Unless you're a vegan, that might be disgusting to you to eat a steak. But I'm using a steak as a metaphor for early human. But for some reason, we thought that eating a steak being pleasurable as a reason to go out and get a steak, for some reason, when a tiger is eating the steak, we let the tiger have the steak. Because we get a 
a, a higher percentage of our thought is based on the negative aspect than on the positive aspect. Positive aspect, mmm, steak. Negative aspect, mmm, I'm the steak now. That's true throughout what we do. Uh, your, your thoughts get processed in your brain with a higher priority to the negatives than to the positives. This is why people tell you to count to 10 when you're angry to let the rest of your brain ca catch up with the prioritized negative side. For a simple reason, that very simple reason that he just explained, people tend to, to send out negative news over low-cost internet connections. Why? Well, because it gets them more listeners and more followers. It gets them more ego boost. It gets people listening to them. So they tend, so there's this great tendency to magnify negative news. And we don't have editors and sitting in newsrooms like we had in the 1950s and 60s and 70s who could filter that news and say, okay, some of this is not completely accurate. Some of it is completely inaccurate. And some of it is strictly opposite of accurate. Unfortunately, people tend to believe inaccurate negative news. They have a strong tendency to follow it. They have a strong tendency to believe it. And Douglas North predicted we'd have a wave of that right about now. And sure enough, we're having a wave of it, and which explains the low vaccination rate. People are legitimately afraid because they see it in writing somewhere that vaccinations cause damage to you. And just to kind of give this background, he didn't come out of this with saying suddenly information is going to drop in the 21st century. And that's it. I pulled that out of a vacuum. Uh, his whole career was spent studying things like the effects of the Gutenberg press, uh, the effect of the telephone or the radio or the telegraph on socioeconomic systems. When information becomes cheaper, when newspapers come out faster, uh, and you always, this is throughout history, when information becomes cheaper to publish, to get out there, when more people have the ability to have a voice and be heard, it causes instability in socioeconomic systems and basically in cultures, in countries. Uh, all of North Africa basically imploded, and we called it the urban or, or the, the Arab street. We called it a democrat democratic movement. Uh, when the reality is it was based on the fact that everybody could have a voice on Twitter and they could do a flash mob type setup, but it really had more to do with food and lack thereof, uh, the price of wheat, than it had, and the fact that they could speak easily on Twitter than any kind of democratic movement. It was simply easier for people to complain to each other and realize that they're not alone and go out and uh, express their discontent because it's if, if there's one person alone with a great deal of discontent or disgruntlement, it generally doesn't have a lot of impact on the world, on the economy. It's just somebody, and, and they tend to be quiet about it. But if they get the impression that a lot of other people are discontent over the same issues, this causes big instability. And this, this is easily predictable in that the internet caused prices to drop, the cell phone caused prices to drop on information transfer. And then we had a big spike in unemployment. Now you have all of the things necessary to have really, really big changes in a socioeconomic system. And he predicted this. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement didn't start in the pandemic. 
Neither did the Blue Lives Matter movement. Neither did the Proud Boys or any of the other massive movements that we saw this huge uptick during the pandemic. This is something that the Romans talked about. How do you keep the mob happy? And they called it the mob, not as like organized crime, though that was a portion of it. But as like the entirety of the populace, how do you keep them happy? And the traditional method of doing that is bread and circuses. Well, during the pandemic, food got more expensive. That's the bread side. And we shut down all the sports. That's the circus. You couldn't go to the circus anyway. Right. Circuses, by the way, just means a big arena, means circle. Um, And circuses are still called that because they have circles inside them. But it's basically the Super Bowl... Uh, the, uh, when, when the basketball teams get to the Super Bowl, uh, people used to watch that and they don't do that anymore. And I told you, I've told you in the past, we don't do sports, but we understand the effect psychologically of when a particular basketball team wins the Super Bowl. So just, just keep that in mind. We have some degree of knowledge in the effects of sport and zero knowledge on the actual doing of sports there. That's good. Um, the, the key, the key is the negative information has been proliferated and we have this thing in our brain. We basically look at the information we receive and we weigh it roughly equally natively. We have a democratic committee in our brain that says, okay, if I got 20 people who said something is bad and five people who said something is good, I'm going to believe it's bad. Even though if you carefully research the 20 people who said it's bad, they have no credibility whatsoever, no basis for their statement. Still, you're going to believe it's bad. Right. We, that, that tolling that we do in our brains causes us. If we watching, if you're watching a channel on television regularly, that is uh, saying there's lots of bad news about this and there's not bad news about that. After a while, you'll come to agree with that channel simply because of polling in your brain. Um, I, while I was in Denver last week, I went to the movie theater. This is the first time I've been to the movie theater in getting close to two years now. I didn't usually go to the movie theater at all. And I was going in and I was like, what do I need to do? Do I need to be wearing a mask? There's a Delta variant out there. I'm vaccinated, but there's some evidence to show that I might get it and be very low symptoms and still be able to spread it. So I brought my mask and I'm thinking, all right, we're going to be in a public space. This is weird. Haven't done this in a while. And we got there and it was just two of us. We were the only two people in the theater. So, and this is a relatively new release. So psychologically, the news on the Delta variant is going to have the same kind of impact on certain types of businesses. Now it could be that that just, that movie wasn't getting a lot of viewership, except that on the streaming platforms it was. So what that says is from a psychological perspective, we're not out of the woods yet. And when we come- You wanna give us a review? A psychology review? No, uh, the movie. Uh, it was quite good. Can't what remember. was it? It's a good movie where you have to be quiet and um, or the aliens will come and get you. Uh, it's really, oh. really, really good. It's a sequel. And I can't think of the name of it because I reserve all my brain power to thinking about who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve and whether or not the Labor Department's releasing on a Tuesday or a Wednesday this week. Um, But one other thing on this subject that we're not out of the woods yet, Monday is the first day that evictions can can begin 
uh, based on the congressional and executive order moratorium on evictions. It's also the first day that foreclosure procedures can be begin on houses that were affected by this moratorium. Boy, is that a bunch of words. Um, basically, the government of the United States, both on the executive and legislative branch, backed up by the courts, said, including the Supreme Court, said, if you have a loan, a mortgage, on a house that is a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or Jenny Mae mortgage, these are all totally backed by the government at this point. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac may eventually go back to being private companies. They're not there yet. They're still existing because the government is involved. That's back from the Great Recession, the global financial uh, catastrophe. By the way, in the economic world, it's being called the GFC, the global financial collapse or the global financial catastrophe, just because we can't say Great Recession. I don't know why. Anyway, the GFC happened. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is being saved by the government. They are by far the largest issuers of mortgages in the United States. Pandemic hit. People lost their job. The government of the United States said, hey, you're not allowed, if you're a landlord and you have a mortgage from one of us, you're not allowed to evict these people. However, you can stop paying your mortgage for now. So interest is still being charged on that mortgage. But the payments aren't being paid. And if you've got a student loan, it's very similar to that where you can call in and say, hey, I've lost my job. Can you put this on hold for a while? The interest still gets charged. It's not like it goes away. You'll have to pay it later. Well, the end of July, which is today, is the last day where that moratorium holds true, which means starting on Monday, eviction notices across the country might be going out. Um, there was a Census Bureau said 3.6 million people are, are, are at risk of being evicted, according to them, because they're more than two months past due on their rent. Uh, mortgages in arrear amount to about 2.5% of the outstanding mortgages right now. That's extremely high. It's usually well below the 1% number which means that we should expect to see a lot of foreclosures and a lot of evictions. Now, this is going to be, sometimes you may have a renter being evicted and foreclosure proceedings starting on a landlord that couldn't collect rent, so couldn't pay the mortgage. So you might see that happening in large numbers. When I say might, it's very, very likely that this is not going to get extended in a last-minute effort. The Republicans have said, hey, at some point we have to absorb this. Because it's not going to go away. It's only getting worse by letting it stay. So what does this mean um, for housing prices? This is going to be a downturn in housing prices in the most demanded demographic for housing. Uh, the houses that run between $150,000 and $250,000 are the ones most likely to be in this foreclosure area, in the eviction area. Which means that house prices over the next six months, not tomorrow, not the next day. Over the next six months may have a downturn in this area. Why six months? Because foreclosures, unlike evictions, can't happen immediately. Even in eviction, you have to give a certain number of days of notice, depending on what state you're in. And you couldn't even begin the notice process during this moratorium. Foreclosures have a much longer process to go through before they get to full foreclosure. 
So being in the proceeding doesn't mean that you're going to have your house foreclosed if you can find some way of making a deal with the bank. Um, hopefully you have been working on that prior to the moratorium going away so that that's set up. Otherwise, get on the phone with the bank and say, what do I need to do? How much do I need to pay? What can I do to start making this back up? And if you're out of a job and you've been out of a job this whole time, there's really not a lot that can be done. It means that you can't pay for the thing that you're obligated to pay for. There's a conundrum here. There's a lot of jobs open. We, we read about and see and hear about the job openings, and there's a lot of job openings out there, obviously. And yet we hear that foreclosures are going to hit an awful lot of people. So who, don't, question, who don't have jobs, right. Who don't have jobs. And so the question that arises, and I think it's an important question, is why is it that we have people who don't have jobs, when jobs are open, who are not able to get jobs, obviously, are they, I mean, if you're, if you're faced with foreclosure or eviction, that's a real high motivation to get a job and start paying the rent and the house payment. Yeah. It's a negative incentive, but it is definitely, it, it will get you moving. That is, that is a for surety. So the point is that there's something other than the $300 a month extra unemployment benefit that's causing this. By the way, even though unemployment rates have been dropping and they've dropped in a lot of places as the unemployment benefits, the $300 extra unemployment benefit went away, it hasn't fixed the situation by any stretch of the imagination. For instance, Texas is still running 6.5% unemployment, much higher than the rest of the nation. We've dropped the extra unemployment benefit. There's something else going on, and I think it has to do with the fact that the, the economy has shifted and the jobs that these people have available to them won't make the house payment, whereas the job before they before the pandemic that they had would make the house payment, and that job somehow has gone away. And this is this is another issue when we talk about demographics. And this is a big part of economics. Part of demographics is where you're located. So there's a mismatch, and we talked about this last week at some length, and the week before that as well. There's a mismatch in skills and location. There's about the same number of job openings as there are unemployed right now but they're in different places. During the Great Depression and every other major financial shift, including the GFC or the Great Recession, you saw a demographic motion where people moved from one place to another in the nation. We have not seen that during this pandemic era. And the reason why we haven't seen it is because people haven't been kicked out of their houses for not having a job. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Don't that totally don't get me wrong on that. There's no way that that's good for anybody to have somebody kicked out of the house. Uh, it's bad for the person being evicted or foreclosed. It's also bad for the person who's doing it. They wouldn't be doing it if it were a nice situation. They're not getting paid and they have to pay. Whether that's a bank or a landlord, it's a tough situation to be in. And if you do a poll of all the landlords that you know and ask them how many of them really love doing evictions, you're going to find something that shouldn't be surprising, but to some people it is. Landlords really hate evictions. But in a, in a major economic downturn, if the jobs have left an area but the people who are in the area where the jobs left that used to work there have a disincentive to move. 
a negative incentive or a positive incentive to stay. Like, hey, I'm in a house that I'm not paying rent on, but I'm allowed to stay here. Why would they leave? Why would they go to another job? We haven't had the migration. And there's one of the, a series of the most iconic pictures of the Great Depression is the folks from Oklahoma with all their furniture in the back of their truck. And it was a statement about the depression for decades and decades after that, the Okies leaving for California uh, because they left an area where the jobs all dried up and went away and their houses were worthless or being foreclosed on, uh, their debts were being collected and so they had to leave. We didn't see that this time around, which is part of the mismatch of where the job openings are and the people that could fill those jobs. Now, there's a lot of other mismatches that have to be arranged. This is not going to be a wonderful thing. This is a very negative thing that has to happen and hopefully happens smoothly in, instead of all in one big massive clump. If it happens in one big massive clump, we may be in a second recession for a little bit. How's that for weird when we've got productivity rises like what we're seeing double digit in certain industries 7% productivity rise across the board when we've got economic growth of year over year 13% growth in the gross domestic product and we might be heading back into another minor recession based solely on the housing issue I don't think it's going to create a recession. I don't think so either. And under normal circumstances, I would say that wouldn't be a recession. But I think it'll, our it'll, definition of recession has changed a lot in the last decade and a half. It used to be two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, otherwise translated as two quarters after one after the other, where the GDP shrank rather than grew. And then for the Great Recession, we say, all right, well, you don't have to have them in a row. You can skip a quarter in the middle. And then for the pandemic recession, they just said, forget about quarters. We had one month of recession. So, Actually two. Actually two. Well, it went from one month to the next. That was, that was the recession. And that is a completely new way of looking at what a recession is. And that's why I say we might have a month of negative growth that only only economists call it that by the way that's shrinkage uh, we might have a month of negative economic growth if we have all these foreclosures and evictions hit at about the same time i think it's going to be spread out but it will dampen the growth no matter how you look at it well as you know we didn't we haven't talked about this and i think it's important to mention it the gdp came in at 6.5 percent on an annualized basis for the second quarter early in the quarter the economists and economic organizations were not economic. Economist organizations that are pretty accurate in predicting these things. When they call them the consensus, yes. They were predicting like 10.5% annualized growth in the second quarter. And then it, in the official, the consensus was 8.7% even just before the announcement came out. Now, this is the, only the first estimate from the Commerce Department, but still it's generally the one we take quite seriously because the next one doesn't come out until the end of October. I mean, the end of August, but 6.5% is considerably slower growth than we anticipated at this point. And the question is, why did we have 6.5% annualized growth rather than having 8.7%? And the answer is, there's a lot of roadblocks. There's a lot of bottlenecks. There's a lot of hiccups going on. 
And we call that, that supply you, chain, but it, it's everywhere. It's, it is encompassing the entirety of the economy right now. And manufacturers are not operating at capacity because they can't get the materials to operate at capacity, and they're raising prices. And we're going through a lot of mini shocks in the economy right now. They're, but they're, they're actually, if you're going to have shocks, this is the kind to have. And it comes down to the fact, and we mentioned this in the newsletter, but it's important to recognize our economy has grown 13% in 12 months. Now, when you have an economy the size of the United States, which is the largest economy in the world, and it accelerates 13% in 12 months, you're going to have a lot of pieces of this gigantic machine we call the U.S. economy that seize up or grind to a halt or slow down or overheat. You you turn we are you use the term working way through it. You use the term whiplash. I think that's actually a better term than the economic mismatch. The the normal term that we use in economics is mismatch. But whiplash is a much better term for what we're seeing now because it's not a gentle mismatch. It is yanking people in the productivity area. It is yanking industrial output. It is yanking service stuff. If you've got if you're a restaurant who require a certain ingredient to make some food, that ingredient may have to come from somewhere else, so you have to change your menu. Uh, and what if that's a popular thing? Well, figure it out, because that's the way everybody's having to do it. To give you some idea how peculiar this event is in economic history, we, are, we now have a GDP larger than the one we had before we went into the recession. Right. So we are past recovery and into expansion. However... Big pieces of the economy are still trying to do recovery, while other pieces of the economy are well past recovery and into full-blown, overheated expansion. And it's a lot of confusion, and it's going to cause a reshaping of our economy, and it will probably take several years to work it out. I think we won't be through these shocks and these bumps until maybe the end of 2023. We're still going to be going through this. Yeah, and that's that is the thing, Tom. At the last part of your question, what's the predicted percentage target needed to where we can move on? Uh, the reality is that once we get to that seventy percent immune in the nation, that's not really even a good number because if the people of Arkansas are still at twenty percent vaccinated, then we're going to continue to have outbreaks in parts of the nation all over. And we're going to continue to have variants of the vi- virus that are everywhere. And, and I've had some conversation with some intelligent people that are generally passionate about the well-being of the people around them who don't want to get vaccines. And they don't want to get vaccines because there's so much information about the vaccine that they don't know what is real and what isn't real, what the dangers are, what they're not. But it's easier to not make a decision than to say yes or no. And that's where they are. So they basically said, unless something new comes out that says I need to do this in a way that I truly understand, I'm not going to do it. Well, there's a simple numeric that's going on. Something around 99% of the hospitalizations in the United States right now for COVID are unvaccinated people. That's right. Now, which, which should tell you something. The vaccinated people are not having to go to the hospital because they're not getting that sick, right. generally speaking. One percent of them are. I have two in-laws right now that we're dealing with this because another in-law was in contact with them. They're both vaccinated, double vaccinated. They're all set. They both just tested positive for COVID. And they're both describing it as a, a bad cold. 
because they're vaccinated. They don't need to go to the hospital for it, but they need to quarantine because the people that are not vaccinated could die from the same thing that's a bad cold to them. So they're not, they don't need to go to the hospital. In fact, the hospital's saying, don't come in. We're full of unvaccinated people who are really sick and you've got a bad cold situation. Just, and locally, for those of you who are listening on AM and who are in the Central Texas area, Scott White, for example, I just got, it was an employee, Scott White, who told me this this week, has stopped taking transfers from outside the system. In other words, if you're out in West Texas or someplace and you have a heart attack, Scott and White will not allow you to come into their system to be treated. Why? Because they're full up. Their beds are getting full very quickly, and they're getting full of COVID infection. And it's it's the Bell County has officially raised their danger level to severe to red. The state has raised the Bell County to red, and there are a lot of people getting COVID in Texas. And but again, 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 and again, we're getting the same picture. It's the people who haven't been vaccinated who are winding up in the hospital and winding up filling up the ICU beds. And we vary in the projections from several different sources are that it should peak this COVID, this COVID Delta variant should peak sometime around October. And when it peaks in October and will rise until then, we will have as many hospitalizations and as many deaths and as many people in ICU, which means they'll be full up as we had in February, which was the peak in the previous peak. And again, everything everything we're seeing indicates is the people who aren't vaccinated who are going to suffer for this. And the, let me throw one other thing in here that's going to be long-term damaging to the economy, which is one of the reasons I think people should get vaccinated. People who are unvaccinated have a very high probability, relatively speaking, of getting long COVID, Yeah, which means you don't get over it. Or you don't, you, nobody knows how long long COVID is. There's estimates, but... We haven't had COVID around long enough to figure it out. But basically, you get sick, you get sick, and you stay sick for a long, long time. And your inability, your inability to work during that period, is going to have a distinct effect on the economy. That's the kind of thing that the marketplace is worried about. The marketplace, meaning the the stock market and the bond market, is concerned about is the fact we could have a lot of people pulled out of the economic system because they're sick. Yeah, and and so- they have to have somebody take care of them. From our perspective, we're not looking at the information, misinformation. We're looking at what is the impact on the economy? What happens if someone gets sick versus getting vaccinated? We're not looking at down at the granular level to see if somebody got blood clots after a vaccination or how many times that occurs. We're looking at a much larger picture of, generally speaking, people that are vaccinated continue to work. And those that aren't and get sick stop working for a while. That's bad for the economy. So we're not looking at this at all politically. This is, it's difficult for me to grasp this because growing up, vaccines were so non-political in my mind. It's just, yeah, you need to have a vaccine to go to school. It's changed over the years with the price of information dropping where anybody can make a claim about the efficacy or the dangers of vaccines. Um, there's a, a big, big study was done by big study. It was done by one person who's a sociologist, not an epidemiologist that was looking at the link between autism and vaccination. And the reality was they looked at survey data that had nothing to do with what he was looking for. He found something and said, this is what that is. He published the report in a very low-end medical public publication journal, 
and was immediately debunked by epidemiologists all over the country by pointing out the errors in his, in his logic in the paper. But that paper is still referred to by the anti-vaxxers as somehow autism is linked to vaccinations when there's simply no link there. Uh, there is a very minor link in blood clots and a certain type of of vaccination that's the same type across whether it's COVID or not. It isn't because this is a new disease. It's just the way it's it's administered. And that causes people to be afraid of the vaccine. And if you think about what we've just talked about and, and talk about uh, at the beginning of, of our hour when we were talking about negative, having a greater weighting as far as priority and judgment in your mind than positive, the negative of a blood, blood clot in a vaccine or an unknown effect that hasn't been documented yet in a vaccine has been talked about enough by people who are saying it's not a big deal that it's become a big deal. The fact that we've just been talking about the dangers of the vaccine gives the vaccine a negative weighting in your mind. When the negative weighting should be how many people are dying from the disease, not how many people are dying from the prevention of the disease. There's a much, 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 much smaller number, but that's not the way our brains work. When you talk about the, the vaccine is safe, except in certain circumstances, your brain remembers except in certain circumstances. Even though the thing that the vaccine is trying to prevent is unsafe in all circumstances. <laughs> So just, just keep that in mind. The way we think is part of the reluctance that a lot of very intelligent people have on getting the vaccine. There's two things that I think of that we're quite spoiled on. One is having certainty. Yeah. We believe in certainty. We, we were taught in children, as children, that certainty. One and one is always two. It isn't, by the way. Not when you're talking rabbits. But we were taught that. Yeah, if you're Not talking rabbits. rabbits and apple trees, and one and one can be any number. But the point is, we believe in certainty and we want certainty. We want somebody to say this is absolutely safe. And the fact is, in a society where we have open communication, we can't say that. By the way, in the 1950s and 60s, they told us the vaccine that we were receiving for polio was absolutely safe. It wasn't. It actually had more side effects any, by far than, than any and more dangerous effect than, than, any, than any modern vaccine. But that's beside the point. We were told it was absolutely safe. It was given to children and it saved countless children's lives because people didn't get polio anymore. We wiped out polio in the United States. But now we have free communication, open communication everywhere. And the end result is we multiply, we magnify these dangers. If you'd like yep. to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting at 254-947-1111. Or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got radio programs going back lots of years, uh, newsletters. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Um, you can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.